Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode, Pizza Bomber. August 28, 2003, in the suburbs of Erie, Pennsylvania, a pizza delivery man named Brian Wells was accosted by several men who locked a time bomb around his neck and ordered him to rob a bank. After delivering the money, he would receive clues to help him disarm the bomb. Known as Collar Bomb by the FBI, It was one of the most ingenious bank robbery schemes in history. However, it did not go according to plan. Investigating the crime after his grisly death, the FBI soon discovered that Wells was not, in fact, an innocent victim. He was merely the first co-conspirator to fall in a bizarre trail of death following the crime. Pizza Bomber, the untold story of America's most shocking bank robbery, is the title of the book penned by FBI agent Jerry Clark and newsman Ed Palatella. It tells the gripping story of one of America's strangest true crime sagas of all time. Newspaper editor and reporter Ed Palatella Join me for this podcast from his home in Erie, Pennsylvania, via Zoom, and now takes us back to the beginning of this strange and unusual case. I was a reporter at the Erie Times News in Erie, Pennsylvania, where I still work, and there are about 30 years. So I was on the job when this, uh, when this incident happened. It came over in the uh, police scanner. It was about 1.30 in the afternoon where um, we heard over the scanner that there was a bank robbery at the PNC Bank in Summit Township, just south of Erie. And then we also heard over the scanner quickly that the suspect was wearing what appeared to be a bomb. So that, get, that got us scrambling. This gentleman, Brian Wells, walks into this PNC Bank um, he's kind of a stocky guy, not muscular, but kind of rolling foley type. Walks in to the bank. Um, he is carrying what appears to be a cane shaped like a shotgun. He's wearing an oversized white, white guest t-shirt. And underneath, looks like there's a, a bulge on his chest. So he walks into the bank, gets online, 
um, asked the teller for uh, $250,000 in cash, which is an extraordinary amount of money. And then she tells him he has to wait. And then he, um, he waits online and then he grabs a lollipop out of the basket on the counter while he's online. And then he goes again and talks to the teller. So, I mean, this guy's got a bomb around his neck and he's acting like, you know, he's got all the time in the world. So, so he hands the teller a series of 11 notes, another odd thing. I mean, you got a bomb around your neck and, you know, you're handing what appears to be a short story to the teller. Do not cause panic or many people will be killed. Sounding any alarm will interrupt this action and guarantee injuries and death. Involving authorities at this point will get this hostage and other people killed. The bomb is expertly booby-trapped and cannot be disarmed in time unless keys are found by following instructions immediately. Bomb-hostage needs less than 20 minutes in the bank and 30 minutes to deliver. No money, no keys. If any one of us is stopped or apprehended, we will detonate bomb or its timer will run out. We will retaliate if interrupted. If any of you fuck up this robbery, it will be our life's mission to fuck up your lives. We have followed your customers and employees home. We know where your families live. They gave him money, not $250,000. It was um, about a little over eight grand. And then he walks out of the bank. He puts the money in a white, a white canvas bag. And as he's walking out, he kind of twirls the bag. In one hand, he looks like Charlie Chaplin walking out of the bank. So he walks out of the bank, and he, um, he gets in his car. It's a greenish-blue Geo Metro. And he proceeds to drive right next door to a McDonald's. And um, he gets out of his car and walks over to the drive through sign of the McDonald's. And um, he, uh, he picks up a rock. And underneath the rock is a note. And he reads the note, gets back in his car, and, and starts to drive away to a parking lot, um, right, an eyeglass world parking lot right nearby. This is a pretty busy section, a commercial section of Erie. There's a lot going on. There's a mall near there. So there's a lot of commercial traffic. So he, he drives into the, um, the eyeglass world parking lot. And before he can get out of the car or drive any further, the state police, state police pull up um, and pull him over, get him out of the car, and um, put him on the, uh, on the ground where he's sitting cross-legged. He's got his hands cuffed behind his back. So, um, so they start questioning him. And um, he says he has a bomb on his chest. And uh, he says, can you lift it up and see how much time's left on it? Must have been the time on it. How much time is left? The troopers asked him what happened. He was black, he tells the trooper. And this is all from a recording of a 
from what was taken from a TV station that was on the scene. Um, so they're, they're continuing to ask him questions. He says the, uh, this black guy um, made him deliver pizzas to what's called the Towers across from an auto dealership not far from where he is now. The um, bank robber tells the uh, police, um, you know, I've got this bomb on his neck. And uh, they ask him, was it real? And he says it had a device with a clock on it. It looked real. It could be a bomb. And then he says they gave him so much time to get the money. 20 minutes for me to get the money. And then I had like another 50 minutes. And then he keeps telling him that he had to go on something of a scavenger hunt to get keys to unlock the bomb. And remember, this is very strange. I mean, this is guy's got a bomb around, a live bomb around his neck, hands behind, locked behind his back, sitting in this parking lot, and he can't tell the police details of what happened to him. I mean, they're asking him, and he's not giving a response or giving vague answers. He's, I mean, this guy is literally on his deathbed here. I don't know if I have enough time. I'm not lying, he says. And then they ask him what his name is, and he says Brian Wells. So then they get some information from him where he works, but they're still questioning him, and he says to them, can you at least take these freaking handcuffs off so I can hold this thing up? It's killing my neck. And the troopers told him to stay put, and he says, um, the troopers say, you know, this is bullshit. I mean, this is a hoax. You better end this now. You're wasting everyone's time. He says, it's not bullshit. I didn't do anything. And then he says, do you think I can have a cigarette? He, he knew it would probably be his last one. The trooper said no. He asked for a priest. He says no. Then the trooper say no. And Wells says, why isn't nobody trying to come get this thing off me? I don't have a lot of time. And then he starts talking about the black guy again. He pulled the key out and started a timer. I heard the thing ticking when he did it. It's going to go off. I'm not lying. And then he says, did you call my boss? And the troopers say, yeah, we called him. So this is going on. And then all of a sudden you can hear a high pitch. And then boom, this bomb goes off and blows a hole the size of a paperback, paperback book into his chest. Kills him instantly. The blast blew Wells straight back. Shrapnel flew over the head of Trooper Dottie, 20 feet away from Wells. A piece of metal landed 50 feet behind Dottie. The trooper shuttled backwards on his buttocks. He felt like he was falling. The boom sounded like an exploding M80. A percussive wave flowed over the head of Jerry Clark. 30 feet away. Wells' chest rose and fell. Then it stopped. Clark realized this was no joke. Holy shit, he thought. This man is dead. The bomb squad, which had been on another call at the time, arrived too late to save Brian Wells. The investigators on the scene soon discovered that Brian Wells was not acting alone, but was actually part 
of a conspiracy with three other participants. Um, well, the uh, co-conspirators put the bomb on him to rob the bank. Um, and this gets really nuts. To rob the bank of what they thought would be a quarter million dollars to give to um, a woman by the name of Marjorie Deal Armstrong so she could give the money to a guy by the name of Ken Barnes so he would kill Marjorie Deal Armstrong's father and inherit what inherit his estate, which at the time was worth well over a million dollars. So that's the that's the plot. Marjorie Deal Armstrong was um she's a, a the rare breed of a female serial killer. Um, she had killed her boyfriend in 1980 mid 1980s in Erie by emptying a revolver into him while he uh, was sleeping on the couch. She claimed uh, self-defense. After he was killed, she also tried to recruit some friends to, uh, to um, cut up his body, dispose of his body. It didn't happen. But she was acquitted. Um, she didn't plead insanity. She pleaded self-defense. She was acquitted. She's back on the street. Um, she, she got married or supposedly got married. That, that man in her life died of a brain hemorrhage. Um, it sounds like it, she said it was a stroke. It kind of could have been a situation where instead of him hitting his head on the coffee table, the coffee table hit him in the head. So we're not quite sure what happened there. So, but she is a menace. Bill Rothstein was um, electrician. Um, his another brilliant guy. Um, his family was well known in Erie for years. They owned a, a soda bottling company when there were still independent bottlers. Um, Rolla Cola was the name of the cola company. Brilliant guy, substitute teacher, big guy. Um, always wore coveralls or overalls. Uh, substitute teacher, expert in robotics and electronics but also kind of strange. So that's Bill Rothstein. He and Marjorie Gill Armstrong were engaged twice, and they were still very close. But he was charged in the, um, the death of uh, James Roden, Marjorie Gill Armstrong's boyfriend at the time, who was shot in the back, and, body, and his body was placed in a chest freezer in, in Bill Rothstein's garage. So he was charged in connection to that case, not as killing him, but as an accessory. It wasn't clear why the body was put in a freezer in the garage, because soon after the body was frozen, Marjorie decided that it would be better to cut it up in pieces, probably for disposal in parts. She was very angry when she discovered how difficult it was going to be to saw up a body that was now frozen. Sidebar, Bill Rothstein eventually tipped the police to the existence of the body in the freezer in his garage because he was fearful Marjorie might come after him next. So, that leaves us with Brian Wells. Was he an innocent victim or a co-conspirator? Well, this is where it gets really crazy 
but that he was, the evidence showed that he was part of this plot and that he had agreed to rob the bank and they had, they had a run through the day before of this and they put this bomb on his neck, but it didn't have any guts to it. It was really light. So he thought it was going to be a fake bomb. Well, so then he gets there the next day and they put the bomb on him and it's real. And he starts to say, I don't want to do this. Turns out they tackle him. Rothstein fires a bullet into the air. They kind of force him to wear the bomb and then he goes on the way. So he was a co-conspirator. He was not innocent. In January of 2005, Deal Armstrong pled guilty but mentally ill to the murder of Jim Roden, the man in the freezer, and was sentenced to between 7 and 25 years in prison. In April of the same year, Deal Armstrong told a state trooper she had information about the Wells case and after meeting with FBI agents, said she would tell them everything she knew if she was transferred from the Muncie Correctional Institution to a minimum security prison in Cambridge Springs. During a series of interviews, Deal Armstrong admitted to providing the kitchen timers used for the bomb and stated that Rothstein masterminded the plot and that Wells had been directly involved in the plan. In July of 2006, U.S. Attorney Mary Beth Buchanan announced Deal Armstrong and Barnes had been charged with the crime, with Deal Armstrong as the mastermind. Barnes pled guilty and was sentenced to 45 years in prison. William Ansel Rothstein had died in 2004 from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, so that only left Deal Armstrong to stand trial. Well, it was quite a show. The, uh, the, the federal trial was quite a show. I mean, she was, it was fascinating. When the judge was there and the jury was there, she was pretty calm. There were a few times where she got kind of out of hand, but I tell you, when that jury was out of the room, she would berate her lawyer, she would berate Jerry Clark, she would talk to me, so yeah, she was, once again, mentally ill, but also very, very bright, so you never quite knew whether she was crazy as a fox or not, so. Yeah, I talked to her almost every day for, oh geez, almost, um, three years she would call me from prison and we would talk about the case and she would say she was at these places but would never she was convinced that what that Rothstein had duped her and that she wasn't involved here but I I mean she was involved was she as culpable I, I mean yeah she was culpable conspiracy you know you know in for a penny in for a pound but was she the driving force behind this? No, that was Rothstein. But her problem was she got caught in the middle because of bad legal advice from her personal lawyer. She started talking to the FBI, Jerry Clark and Jason Wick, the ATF agent on this case. She started talking to them at the beginning of the investigation once she was involved and started saying, yeah, I was here and there. 
And then when she finally got a federal public defender, he told her, hey, knock it off. We're not saying anything else. So she, could, she should have either said nothing or she should have said everything. Instead, if she had said everything, she could have worked out a plea deal and, and testified against other people. But she got caught. On November 1st, 2010, Deal Armstrong was convicted of armed bank robbery, conspiracy to commit armed bank robbery, and of using a destructive device in a crime. On February 28, 2011, she was sentenced to life in prison. The federal government was not able to seek the death penalty because Brian Wells was a co-conspirator. On April 4, 2017, Marjorie Deal Armstrong, the self-proclaimed woman with a million-dollar smile, died from breast cancer in prison at the age of 68. As the case developed, the investigation garnered national media coverage in America. Less than two years since the September 11 attacks, many at first believed the incident to be terrorist-related. Due to its novelty and complexity, the story remains a fascination for many people. The Wells incident has been the inspiration for a number of works of fiction. A short-lived 2006 NBC television series, Heist, dramatized the incident in a pilot featuring Zac Afron as a teenage pizza delivery worker who was forced to commit a robbery with a bomb on his chest. The 2011 American comedy film 30 Minutes or Less depicts a pizza delivery man being forced to wear a bomb vest to rob a bank. The film's similarity to the Wells case was criticized by the Wells family but Sony Pictures said the filmmakers were not aware of the Wells case. A postscript to today's podcast, I would like to thank Ed Pelletella, for his assistance in this podcast. Remember the book written by him and Jerry Clark, the FBI agent on the case, is Pizza Bomber, the untold story of America's most shocking bank robbery. It's available on Amazon, and you can also find more information and contact the authors at their website, www.pizzabomber.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, I hope you'll sample other segments of Murder Most Foul at wherever you receive your podcasts. Also, I would love to hear your comments or suggestions for coverage of other interesting murders. And you can send me your comments via my email address, which is James Solonowski. That's James S U L. A-N-O-W-S-K-I, one word, no spaces, no caps, at gmail.com. Until we meet again.
witness in person. Well, the deal is that in federal court, murder is not a crime um, prosecuted in federal court. So in this case, they she was prosecuted. The, the big charge was um, a bank robbery involving a death. Now, the reason they didn't seek the death penalty was because Wells was involved in the plot. If he had been totally innocent, then she likely would have faced the death penalty. Not likely, she would have faced the death penalty. But because Wells was involved in the plot to the degree that he was, the U.S. Attorney's Office did not pursue um, the death penalty. And as I remember again from the book that when that was sort of, I guess it was an open press conference possibly or press announcement that, that they were not seeking or they couldn't, they couldn't get it or, you know, whatever based on quote unquote, we'd like to think if we're the victim technicality, his family was livid. Is that? Oh right? yeah. Yeah. Wells's family was very upset throughout. They didn't believe that Marjorie Neil Armstrong was involved. So they thought they were, you know, getting the wrong people, but it was never quite clear who those people would be. But the family was quite upset. I mean, it's a horrible thing. I mean, your loved one is blown up in, in the strangest way and it, it's captured on a TV.